Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Born in St. Louis in 1927, Glennon Engelman was one of four children. He went on to earn a degree and become a dentist. The New York Daily News reported that he set up his practice in a poor neighborhood and often treated patients for free. He married Edna, a kindergarten teacher, but their marriage lasted less than three years. After the divorce, she continued to see him for gentle work and the occasional fling. Edna remarried in 1958 to James Bullock, who was 27, sang in the choir at church, and enjoyed music and photography. His parents died when he was a teenager, and he lived with his aunt right up until the day he got married. James worked at the Chevrolet assembly plant, then a local newspaper, before serving in the military. Upon returning, he worked in an office job at the local electric company and attended night school to become an accountant. James was a hard worker. He and Edna purchased a brick bungalow with a big mortgage. Edna had a wild side and decided marriage wasn't for her after all and confided in her ex-husband, Glennon suggested a plot to get rid of James and cash in on the insurance money. The St. Louis Globe Democrat reported that in mid-December, James helped decorate the Christmas tree at the office, went home for dinner, and strung up Christmas lights. Then around 7 p.m., headed to his night classes at the School of Commerce and Finance. But somehow, James was lured out of his way and ended up at the art museum. He stopped his car behind the museum, parked, but left it running. He was shot once in his left temple with the twenty-two. He turned and was shot a second time in the forehead. More bullets pummeled into his chest. Blood splattered on the steering wheel and his textbooks laying on the front seat. He managed to open the door, leaving his blood on the door frame. His adrenaline was pumping, and his body moved on instinct. He managed to run to the road in front of the museum, just as Louis Gola was driving by. James waved his arms frantically, trying to get Louis to stop. He swerved to miss him. He turned and noticed that James appeared to have blood running down his face and that he was being chased by a man who had something in his hand. He couldn't tell what it was. Lewis had his baby in the car and putting safety first, he did not stop. 
James fell onto the pavement in the middle of the road. Blood pooled around him. Then another unsuspecting motorist drove down the road when his headlights shone on something. His car screeched to a stop. He got out and started walking back when he spotted the crumpled body of James. Another car was fast approaching. He waved his hands in the air to try and stop him. The driver saw him but couldn't stop in time. James suffered six broken ribs and tire tracks on his right thigh and left leg. The driver ran inside the museum and called police. James was loaded onto a stretcher, but died as he was being loaded into the ambulance. James was 27. Police interviewed Edna numerous times. Each time, she played the grieving widow. Edna received just over $42,000 in life and mortgage insurance. Police questioned Glennon, and at first, he was cooperative and agreed to take a lie detector test. But when he got to the polygraph room, he changed his mind and stopped cooperating. Police suspected that she and her ex-husband had something to do with James's murder, but had no evidence. James's murder case went cold. Five years later, in 1963, Glennon bought a drag strip and partnered with John Carter and Eric Frey. Eric was married to Sandra, an ex-girlfriend of Glennon's. At some point, Sandra decided she didn't want to be married any longer and devised a plan with Glennon for her to become a wealthy widow. In September, John and Glennon stacked dynamite into a well that was scheduled to be blown up. Eric was in the well when all of a sudden the ground blew apart and the dynamite exploded. Eric was 23. Glennon commented to John that he killed him for the insurance. Eric's death was ruled accidental and his widow received $25,000 in life insurance and invested 16000 of it into the drag strip as payment. Twelve years later, Glennon was still a dentist living in St. Louis, and he was still killing. Court records revealed that Carmen Miranda worked for him. She'd known him since she was a child. One day at work, she confided in Glennon that she was having financial problems. She respected him and relied on his advice. He suggested she could get out of her financial mess by marrying someone, taking out a life insurance policy on him, then Glennon would kill him and they split the insurance money. And he assured Carmen that his plan would work because he'd done it before with Eric's wife, Sandra. Glennon helped Carmen pick out their victim, Peter Holm. Carmen and Peter married in October 1975. 
She kept in touch with the dentist, and he advised her on how to take out life insurance on her new husband. The two scouted out possible locations and decided on a wooded area with caves that Peter liked to visit. Glennon asked his friend, Robert Handy, to purchase a stolen rifle. On September 5, 1976, Carmen and Peter were driving past the wooded area when, as Carmen had hoped, her husband suggested they stop and visit the caves. They walked into the woods and stopped near a pond. Glennon was hiding nearby. As they stood side by side, he snuck up behind Peter and shot him in the back. Carmen screamed. Glennon tried to calm her down, but then he heard a voice and bolted into the woods. He buried the rifle under leaves and fled. Peter died before arriving at the hospital. He was 26. Carmen collected $75,000 in insurance. She gave $10,000 of it to Glennon as payment. He and his wife Ruth and Robert counted the $100 bills. Then Robert suggested they break it down into smaller denominations to avoid suspicion. So he and Ruth took the money to local banks. With little evidence to go on, Peter's case went cold and Glennon got away with his third murder. Meanwhile, he was already working on his next victim. Although Glennon wasn't particularly handsome, he seemed to have a way with the ladies. He divorced Ruth and had reconnected with a former girlfriend, Barbara Boyle. She was now divorced too. Glennon conspired with her to marry and murder for money. Together, the couple picked out their target, a man named Ronald Goosewell. His parents had money, and he was set to inherit it. Barbara pursued Ronald, and they married in May 1976. Glennon waited a year and a half after their wedding to put their plan in motion. In November, he drove to rural Madison County, past Ronald's house, and pulled into his parents' driveway. He drove behind their farmhouse and parked by an outbuilding. It was 6 p.m., and Ronald's father, Arthur, was sitting in a chair in the living room. Glennon let himself in, walked up close, and shot him twice in the head. Then he turned the gun towards the kitchen and shot his mother, Vernita, three times in cold blood. Her blood slowly trickled over the floor. She was 55. Glennon threw things around the house to make it look like a robbery, then fled, assuming they were both dead. But Arthur wasn't. He managed to pick up the phone and dial the operator. An ambulance arrived, and the attendant tried to make out Arthur's mumbling. He was trying to tell him something. It sounded like he'd been robbed. Arthur was taken to the hospital, but died in surgery. 
He was 61. Scuba divers searched the pond on the farm. Any hundred neighbors and volunteers walked the road between the farmhouse and the highway, looking for the weapon that had been used. Police felt the murders were a planned execution, but the murder weapon was never found, and there was no evidence. Ronald and Barbara collected a quarter of a million dollars from his parents' estate. Then a year and a half later, Barbara decided she wanted more. She wanted Ronald's life insurance. So again, her and Glennon conspired to murder for profit. Meanwhile, Glennon had rung up a $14,000 bill at a local dental lab. Sophie Barrera, the owner, sued him. But instead of paying his bill, he decided to get rid of her. Court records indicate that on March 20, 1979, he used dynamite to make a bomb and placed it in a green plastic bag and dropped it off at her home, leaning it up against her garage. But it was raining and the water dampened the dynamite. It only partially exploded, damaging the garage, and Sophie survived. Afterwards, Glennon confided in his ex-wife, Ruth, that he was responsible for the bomb. Ruth was appalled. Now back to Barbara and Ronald. Eleven days later, on a Saturday night, Ronald finished his shift at the oil refinery. In the company locker room, he changed his clothes and headed home in his sporty Chevy Camaro. Somewhere along the way, he ran into Glennon. He shot Ronald in the chest and left him for dead. When Ronald hadn't arrived home by 1 a.m., Barbara reported him missing. Four days later, his body was found in the back seat of his car in a parking lot of an office building. Glennon laid low for 10 months. Then in January 1980, his trial for Sophie's lawsuit was set to start. A week before, Glennon planted a second bomb under Sophie's car while it sat in the parking lot at her office building. It was nearing 5 p.m., and with no idea of what was about to happen, Sophie finished working, strode to her car, she placed her briefcase in the trunk, walked to the driver's side and got in. She put the key in the ignition and turned it. The explosion ripped through the car and shattered windows in nearby buildings, with glass running down on the street. Sophie was 59. The explosion ripped through the car and shattered windows in nearby buildings, Glass rained down on the street. Sophie was 59. Glennon had got away with six murders. Or so he thought. Bomb investigators noticed that the bomb's pressure switch was similar to the partially exploded bomb nine months earlier. Two days later, his ex-wife Ruth 
contacted agents at the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and told them that her ex-husband was responsible for the bomb. She agreed to have her conversations with Glennon recorded. She consented to wearing a wire and to a recording device being placed in her home. Investigators listened to Glennon talk about his involvement with Peter and Sophie's murders, the money he received as payment, and his experience with explosives. Four years after Peter's murder, Glennon was arrested and charged for his murder. He was also charged with mail fraud for the insurance money he received. Three weeks later, he was charged with Sophie's murder. He pled not guilty to both. In August at his trial for mail fraud, Glennon was found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in prison. A month later, he went on trial for Sophie's murder. It took the jury only four hours of deliberation to convict him. The jury spared him the death penalty, and he was sentenced instead to 50 years in prison with no parole. Two months later, Glennon went on trial for Peter's murder. A mistrial was declared when a sheriff failed to properly sequester the jury. At his second trial, Glennon was found guilty and sentenced to 50 years with no parole. Robert Handy, who'd bought the murder weapon that killed Peter, was also charged with murder. In a twist and hoping for leniency, he provided police with details on the Goosewell murders. Glennon was charged and pled guilty to the murders of Arthur, Vernita, and Ronald. In a plea bargain, he was spared the death penalty and received three life sentences. Robert received a 17-year sentence. Peter's wife Carmen testified against Glennon. In exchange, she was granted immunity and was not charged with her husband's murder. Ronald's wife, Barbara, was convicted of his murder and sentenced to 50 years, although she served less than half her sentence. She was found not guilty on conspiracy charges for the murders of his parents. Glennon started killing in 1958, and it took 22 years for justice for four of his victims. He was never charged for the murders of James Bullock and Eric Frey. For Glennon, many theorized that it wasn't about the money. It was all about power. It's quite possible that he murdered others that we'll never know about. After her mother's murder trial, Sophie's daughter Linda said, I feel justice was done. I'm still not totally satisfied until I see him dead. It took 19 years, but she got her wish. Glennon died in prison in March 1999. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20. With less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday 
for the episode of the Richardson family. Jeremy the werewolf was in love. He found his soulmate and gave 12-year-old J.R. a vial of his blood. Her parents noticed the change in their daughter and grounded her. J.R. was furious and set out to get revenge. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>